This fall, we're in a series called The Gospel of Jesus. We believe the gospel presents a compelling case for what Jesus' early followers believed. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to redeem His creation and make all things new. We believe the gospel of Jesus makes the most sense in explaining the meaning and purpose of life and our part in it. Was Jesus sinless? And why did Jesus have to die? So here we are in this crazy situation, uh, this mashup, a pileup of pandemic and politics, and uh, it's pretty distracting, isn't it, uh, to ask questions, especially big ones like that. Gee, was Jesus sinless? Why did he have to die? I don't know. I just know that I'm overwhelmed with work, with responsibility, especially if you're a parent of small kids, if you have kids in school, oh my gosh, balancing work. And uh, being a, a tutor at home, oh my gosh, huge, huge um, challenges. So, uh, in order to find our way in the business of life, what do we do? Because if we don't do something, we're going to underestimate just how much uh, our faith matters to us. When you're busy, when you're anxious, when you're fearful, you underestimate really what matters most in life. Why? Because you're fixated, you're focused on dealing with this thing that is confronting you, that's overwhelming you, which is troubling you. And that becomes the main critical thing you have to deal with. But often, in order to deal with the critical things in life, pandemics and politics and whatever, we need to step back and ask the big question. What is at stake here? You need to reframe and, and, and refresh your view of what you're in the middle of. Otherwise, we're all overwhelmed and we just scramble uh, to either get out of the situation, uh, to correct the situation, uh, to uh, blame somebody for the situation. Uh, but we need to stop and ask this big question. Is Jesus essential for life or is Jesus incidental to life? Now you might think, well, that's kind of an esoteric, abstract question. No, it's really actually speaking to the heart of the issues that create fear and anxiety, stress, uh, and discouragement to us. Is Jesus essential for life or incidental to life? If you conclude that Jesus is essential for your life, it puts you on one track. If you conclude, however, that Jesus is incidental to your life, well... You move on and look for other resources that could help you deal with life, right? We live in a culture, generally speaking, that people would say Jesus is absolutely, unequivocally uh, incidental to life. Uh, he deserves to be in a very personal, private place in your life, but don't try to bring him out into the public sphere, in, into the culture generally. He has nothing to say, uh, nothing to speak to in terms of the culture. That would mean that he's absolutely incidental. You call him out for special occasions, invoke his name occasionally, but if you're a person for whom Jesus is essential, it's not that now you become uh, obnoxious in Jesus' name and mug everybody in Jesus' name, becoming socially inappropriate, constantly wanting to talk about Jesus in every setting. But rather you say, Lord, if you are essential to my life, what does it look like for me to navigate life in you and with you, through you and for you? And as I navigate that life in you and with you, through you and for you, how do I positively impact people along the way? How do I bless other people along the way? So that's, that's the setting uh, for the morning. 
And if we're going to really resolve the fact that Jesus is essential for life, not incidental to it, we have to understand, did he die for a reason? Was there a purpose for his death? And was he actually qualified? Was he, uh, uh, was he perfect and sinless in order to take away the sins of the world, to, to deal with the problem that we have in the world? So first point of the morning would be this. Everyone has a worldview. What's yours? A worldview is how we make sense of the world. Uh, oftentimes we, we have a worldview that is so internalized that it's also unexamined. We don't really think about the implications for the decisions we make, the feelings we have, uh, the actions we take, the thoughts that lead us and guide us and shape us um, from a point of, of a worldview. It's more like a circumstantial response, a knee-jerk reaction. But if we really have a worldview, it deserves to be examined and considered so that our life can align with that worldview and we know why we decide to do things the way we do them at the times in ways that we do them. Are you following me on this? A worldview is a functional part of our architecture. A worldview ends up being an essential part of who we are. It's not incidental because even if you're not aware of it, you're, you're, you're acting out of a worldview, a way of understanding the world. Decisions, conclusions you've made about how the world works. And so uh, I ask you this question. Where did Jesus get his authority, his integrity, his congruity? Well, from being God. From being God. Because he was God, he was perfect in every way. He was fully God and fully human. This is an idea we're going to explore this morning. So out of that identity as God, Having come into the world he created, now fully God, fully man, in the world that he created, we see that Jesus has authority, integrity, and congruity in everything he does. He's perfectly aligned with his own personhood in everything he says and does in the world. Which makes him pretty unique, don't you think? Uh, I want to look at a passage out of Matthew 26, uh, verses 57 to 68. Uh, it's on the night that Jesus was betrayed and then arrested, uh, brought to the high priest and put on a trial, uh, put through a trial. It says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Now this is uh, the official governing body of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. Uh, they live under the rule, the authority of Rome, but the Romans are happy to let them be uh, the Sanhedrin and the, and the leaders of Israel as long as they comply with uh, all the Roman uh, rules and requirements. And Caiaphas lived in an exceptionally large uh, home. It was referred to as Caiaphas's palace. So it's probably not a stretch to think that 70 people could pack into it. And most likely not all 70 uh, were, were present. And if they were, it was a very intense, expectant group of people wondering what were we called together in the middle of the night to do. So they were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. It was a, it was a predetermined outcome that they were looking for. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Apparently, Jesus said this uh, in the last week of his life 
when somebody said, oh, the temple is so impressive, and he said, actually, destroy it, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Evocatively speaking about the fact that uh, <laughs> there is no temple needed. God is in your midst. And then later we find out that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that God actually inhabits us. Even as we abide in Him, He inhabits us through His Holy Spirit. And so Jesus made this comment about the, at the, the, about the temple, and, and it being the centerpiece of, of Jewish life, that was very offensive. And so this was the evidence they brought forward. And so Caiaphas said, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Implying it's very serious. But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, you have said so. Virtually, it is as you say. And then Jesus said this, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's an outrageous comment. What is he talking about? Well, he's referring to the fact that we are bound by time and space. And the next time they see him, when he and Caiaphas will meet again, it will be out of time and space. It will be in the context of eternity. And what, what Caiaphas will see is the Son of Man sit, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Uh, needless to say, uh, this was offensive to Caiaphas. It's just to say, Caiaphas, when you stand before me next time, you'll be standing before God himself in all of his glory, in all of his power and sovereignty and dominion. Reminds me of the old slogan said in business and in Hollywood. Uh, be nice to the people you meet on your way up because you will meet them again on your way down. And here's an example of that. Jesus saying, it is as you say. And here's what that looks like. Maybe you think of life as being a very long, long thing. Uh, the older we get, the more we realize, gosh, life is a very short thing. It goes by in a blink. We live in a, a, a construct of creation, time and space. But God dwells outside of time and space. That's why things can be happening, as Jesus described it, as if it's that moment. Because in the sense of eternity, it's an eternal moment. Every moment is present, right? And so the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He is worthy of death. Uh, now, they meant, because he's blasphemed the holy name of God, he deserves to die. Ironically, in the context of the question we're asking, why did Jesus have to die? Was Jesus sinless? Is Jesus essential for life? He is worthy of death. Not for any bad thing he's done, but he's worthy to die. Worthy is a lamb who was slain. This is the, the refrain that we read in the book of Revelation. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So it gets ugly very quickly. Peter now, having seen all this, that's the reason we know from Peter and other witnesses what happened at that meeting that night. Now Peter realizes, oh my gosh, this is, this is really getting out of control. And Peter flees. But you see the problem here? Uh, they didn't look at the evidence they had. Uh, Jesus' miracles, his signs, his wonders. Uh, 
his impeccable teaching, his impeccable character. For three years, they've watched him. They've heard him. They've heard about him. Nobody could say anything bad against him. But they've ignored all that evidence. They weren't interested in who he really was because fear and pride blinded them to him. Fear. If he's who he says he is, what does that mean for us? Pride. We don't need anybody like him to be our Messiah. He couldn't possibly be our Messiah. Uh, People still think and talk that way, unfortunately. Who needs Jesus? He's incidental. Keep him in your private, personal little little place. Uh, But don't trot him out in front of us and, and think he has anything to contribute or any authority uh, to speak. They wanted evidence supporting and confirming who they assumed he was. They needed a reason to cancel him so they could signal virtuous authority. Look what we've done. We've put him on trial. Look what he is, a pretender. Of course, they failed because immediately what happens is shocking beyond belief that he would be crucified and yet raised from the dead. That this movement uh, would be launched of people who are saying, I've been transformed by the living presence of God in the name of Jesus. So if the first point is this, everyone has a worldview, what's yours? Uh, The second point is this, because this is what and who shapes our worldview, we can have confidence Jesus is who he says he is, and we can trust in him. It's not just enough to believe things about him, but to trust in him. If you've ever done bungee jumping, uh, you can believe it because you watch people jumping off and bouncing up and down and, and walking away with fun pictures. But until they put the harness on you and they check it to be sure it's on properly and then they say, jump, that's the point of trust. And so we can have confidence Jesus is who he says he is, and not only that, we can trust in him. After all, we trust people. We have to trust people with authority, credibility, and influence to keep us informed, to keep us on the tracks. Uh, parents, teachers, coaches, historians, journalists, those who cut our hair. I mean, think of the people who we let into our lives, who we trust, we listen to, influence us, have opinions on things. Um, we can have confidence in Jesus because of all the data, all the evidence that says he's trustworthy. Now, in our culture, our, our day and age, many regard Jesus as a peer to Buddha, Confucius, uh, the Dalai Lama, any, any number of religious authorities and pundits. Uh, Why do we regard Jesus on the par with Buddha and whomever? Uh, Well, because we're trying to be respectful. We're trying to say, well, you know, these are well-intentioned people who had a message, uh, had a a point of view. Uh, Some of it is very helpful to people. And and yet, uh, there's another subtext to that. It's that, well, you know, spiritual is spiritual. It's all the same thing. Heaven, all roads lead to heaven. If If there even is a heaven. So one's as good as another because all of them are just sort of incidental to life, not essential. And after all, it goes, you can't evaluate spirituality critically, can you? Well, why not? Not disrespectfully, not disdainfully. But why wouldn't we evaluate any spiritual belief critically to say, well, is it true? Is it good? What are the implications of this? Why not? It's an important decision we make in whom to put our trust. Why wouldn't you want to say, is this person, is this movement trustworthy? What is the evidence for that? What's the criteria by which I will evaluate this? 
It's not just subjective. There's some objective truth at stake. Was Jesus an interesting but naive holy man, or was he holy God? Uh, perhaps you remember Che Guevara. Che Guevara, the romantic revolutionary uh, in, in Cuba. Uh, to this day, people wear Che Guevara t-shirts. It's very, very um, um, impressive to think of Che Guevara, this guy who spoke truth to power. The problem with Che's life, he's one of the f- most fascinating books I read when I was in high school, was that Che Guevara had this brilliant idea of how to be a revolutionary. He had all these rules for the road as a revolutionary. And yet he broke and failed to keep every single one of them. So at the end of the day, Che uh, died as a very unsuccessful revolutionary. And yet still, his, his image is on t-shirts and, you know, go Che. We, we've romanticized Che, and yet if you look at Che objectively, even if you believe in some of the, the ends he was trying to reach, you say, you know, he fell far short of his claims, his character, and there was no resurrection. So what did Jesus say about himself and about his mission? He, he said things like, I, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He had all these I came statements. I, I came to give you life in all its fullness. I came to seek and save the lost. I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And then at the end of his life, he was able to say, having done everything he said he was going to do, it is finished. To tell us that, it is finished, as in, it is complete. I have fulfilled everything I said I would do and that I came to do. Now, I find it interesting, sad really, that modern leaders won't reveal their vision or their mission. It's too risky and revealing. Tell us what you're going to do. How are you going to do it? What will it cost? What will the impact be on people? What's the upside? What's the downside? How do you know it will work? Our leaders won't make that kind of commitment. They want to manipulate us, to motivate us, this is maybe a nicer way of saying it, to go with their vision. But we don't really have much data to base that vision on. Jesus did. Jesus laid out this vision of who he was, what he had come to do, how he would do it, what life would look like in trusting him. It's shocking to think about that. Jesus lays it out for us. And here's what some others said about him and what he said about himself regarding his character and his mission. Nicodemus, uh, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. In response to some of the pushback he got from the religious leaders, Jesus said, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And there was a long silence. Nobody could respond to that. And so he said, if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Pilate, the Roman uh, representative, the governor, before whom Jesus had to appear in order to be um, uh, convicted and executed, said this, I find no basis for a charge against him. Paul, the man who was, uh, excuse me, the Roman centurion, standing at the foot of the cross, not just a soldier, but a leader among soldiers, a judge of people. Seeing Jesus and the way he died on the cross, the things he said and did while on the cross, said this, surely this was the Son of God. And then Paul, the apostle, first Saul the persecutor, now Paul the apostle, said this of Jesus, God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us, to take on our sins, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, the writer of Hebrews, summarizing it, you see this toward the back of the New Testament. He says, for we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. These are just a few of the testimonies given on Jesus' behalf, comments and observations made about him. And so Jesus is a category of one, fully human, fully alive, a fully realized, perfect human being. And we see the things that support that. All of them can be contested, certainly. But at least we can bring it out and say, well, let's make some sense of this. His virgin birth, his genealogy, his congruent claims, character, and resurrection. Now, congruent means there's no distinction between who you are inside and who you are publicly. You're a perfectly realized, a perfectly aligned person. You're congruent. One of the great uh, signs of, of personal health and growth in any human being is becoming a congruent person. Otherwise, we, we default to, well, do what I say, not what I do. But Jesus was entirely congruent. The prophecies supported his fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Dozens of prophecies. Any one of them, interesting, all of them together, pretty persuasive. And so, yes, we agree that Jesus was a good man. Most people say Jesus was a, was a good man. Certainly he was a good man. The best who ever lived, possibly, probably. I think, in fact, he was the best person who ever lived. Who else has lived who was so congruent? But we also proclaim him the perfect man and the sacrificial lamb of God, the Messiah, the one who is worthy to take upon himself the sins of the world. He alone he alone had the authority and capacity to take away our sins. Demonstrated in word and deed over a three-year ministry. And so who else could qualify to be Savior of the world and atone for our sin? I mean, no one. Good men and women have done wonderful things throughout history. We could go through lists and lists and lists of phenomenal men and women who have done noble and wonderful and beautiful uh, sacrificial things throughout history. Many have died for their efforts, but no one was like Jesus. How could they be? In fact, like I said, he's a category of one. Only Jesus had the qualities and the capacity to achieve his unique mission. He laid it out there and he achieved it. He came to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to God. To rescue us, to redeem us, and to reconcile us to God. That was his mission. He didn't have to die. He chose to die. He gave himself. He gave himself for us. Nobody took his life. They thought they were taking his life. He came to give his life. Why? This is the best part. Love compelled him. Love for you, love for me, love for all of us. Uh, as, as it says in John 3.16, John's Gospel, 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have life eternal, life forever in him. 
And so to understand Jesus' ministry, we need to understand two things, Exodus and the temple. Exodus issue, cele- uh, Israel celebrated the Passover to commemorate their salvation, uh, their, 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 excuse me, uh, their salvation from uh, rescue from slavery. Israel celebrates to this day the Passover. They were enslaved in Egypt. God said, I will, I will free you and take you to a promised land. And that moment when they were going to be freed is called the Passover because they were instructed to sacrifice a perfect lamb to cover their doors from top to bottom, side to side, with the blood of that lamb, to stay in their house. And when the angel of death passed over the land, they would be preserved. Otherwise, the, the firstborn child in every home uh, would, would die. And through this out, outrageous and amazing moment, event in the life of Egypt and in Israel, the people are released from captivity. And so to this day, they celebrate the Passover. And then that Passover sets up for the temple system. The orderly uh, uh, system of, of making sacrifice uh, for the sins of the people and his offerings of praise to God. God commanded the people to present blood sacrifices to cover their sin. They were, people were already doing this. They were already making sacrifices. Uh, we haven't outgrown our need for the shedding of blood to cover sin. Uh, to this day, this is practiced uh, everywhere in ways that you might not relate to this, but nonetheless, we expect a sacrifice for sin to this day. And the sacrificed lamb, goat, or bull was to be perfect and unblemished, not just to avenge something or to revenge against someone, but to cover the sins of the people. It was an inadequate temporary system. But we see this in Exodus in the temple. What we see then in fulfilling this is Jesus, the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for sin and the offering of praise to God. What we could not do, given that we're already sinners, We're already imperfect. Jesus, the perfect one, presents himself as the sacrificial lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He alone could qualify. He alone could complete that mission. Jesus is revealed as the unblemished lamb of God and the great lion of Judah. And let me end by saying this. Jesus wasn't a naive victim of political miscalculation and political intrigue. He laid down his life and fulfilled his purpose for coming into the world. It was his gift to us because he loves us that much. And so I, I leave you with this passage from John. John's Gospel, verses, chapter 20, verse 31. These are written, everything he's written in this Gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's why we gather on occasions like this to celebrate Holy Communion, uh, sometimes called the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving meal, um, the Lord's Supper. And on that night that he was betrayed, Jesus, gathering his disciples together for this final meal, takes this unleavened bread reminiscent of of the Passover meal, the original Passover meal, and he blesses it, giving thanks to God. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, cup of wine, left untouched during the Passover meal, and even to this day not touched because this is the cup that only the Messiah can drink. He took that cup, and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do. We, we eat this bread and we drink this cup remembering who Jesus is and was and will be. Remembering who we are in him and why we not only believe in him but put our trust in him. He's the one that allows us to make that confession that he is essential to my life because as I've understood the love of God so I can give the love of God as I understand the justice of God, I can extend the justice of God. As I've been forgiven by God, I can forgive others in His name. As I've received God's compassion and mercy, I can offer compassion and mercy wherever I go. You see where this goes? It leads us back into the marketplace. We don't withdraw. We engage. We say, I'm here in Jesus' name. We find the right words, the right time, right moment to articulate the reason for the hope that is within us. We want to go out into the world and say, you know, um, Jesus himself is essential for this world being what it was meant to be. Only Jesus can make this world what it is meant to be. And so it's challenging, isn't it? You just can't barge in. People are defensive. People are skeptical. So what do we do? We do what Jesus did. We do our best to proclaim and teach and demonstrate his kingdom, one day at a time. May God bless you as you do that. And so, Lord Jesus, as we receive this bread and this cup, renew us, restore us, refresh us, reconcile us to you, to ourselves, to one another. Give us a deep, a deep understanding of the essential nature of abiding in you. That, Lord, we can see you as so essential to every good and perfect gift in life that we would find the most creative, appropriate ways to live it out, uh, to proclaim it, to teach it, to demonstrate it. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ever ask or imagine give you everything you need to live now and forever in him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.